Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. is Ben, by the way, and so if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here with Christ Chapel, um, and I'm, I'm really, really honored and blessed that I get to, to preach uh, God's Word to us today. So um, we're going to be in, in the book of Luke. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, but um, we're going to be in Scripture. We'll start in Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, um, we'll throw up the, the verses on the screen, but also if you made it to college without a Bible or you lost yours or whatever, we've got Bibles around this room. We preach from this thing every week. We'd love for you to have one. Just take one on your way out. They're all around these tables on the back. So on your way out, just grab one of those and it's our gift to you. Um, I grew up, I grew up in a Garland, Texas. Anybody from Garland, Texas? Oh, my wife, my wife's from Garland, Texas. Yeah, and that's about everyone else we went to high school with is in prison. So no, that's just, it's just us. Um, Garland, Texas, great place to grow up. Uh, I grew up in the public school system, big public school guy. Okay, yes, a public schooler is great. And you're not in prison, good. See, it works, um, it works, right? Uh, love, honestly, loved public school. And for two years, I actually went to my freshman and sophomore year. I grew up in the public school system in big, huge schools, and then my freshman and sophomore year of high school, I went to this tiny little uh, Christian private school. And it wasn't bad. It wasn't awful. It wasn't necessarily my speed, but it, I learned a lot and God used it in my life. But then my junior year, I went back into the high school that all of my buddies I had grown up with, you know, this, this big high school and was kind of back in that, that world. And one of the things that as I transitioned from a sophomore in a tiny little private school that had about 15 kids in my entire grade back into, you know, 2,000 kids in, in my public school, um, when I transitioned back, one of the things for me was the football team. And all through middle school, I played football with all these guys. And so sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, I played on the middle school football team. And I wasn't that great, right? But as a middle schooler, like I made the team and I was on the team. I was a wide receiver. You don't throw that much in middle school, but there I was. When they threw it to me, I caught like one out of five of them. Um, and so my thought was like, oh man, I want, specifically, I'm a 16-year-old high school boy I, I got to have a high school experience that's significant, right? I got to be somebody. And I'm stepping back into this big pond and I got to have my identity. And at the time I had a lot of buddies who I did football with all through middle school. And now they are going to be varsity juniors um, and they're going to be on the varsity team. Man, I, I should probably be on the football team with them. And I remember this summer of evaluating, should I go back and play football and, and chatting with some of them who were going to be varsity and like looking at the tryouts and, and kind of evaluating that and realizing I haven't played or practiced. I don't know the system. I don't know the program. If you go to that school as a freshman, even if you're not that good, they'll put you on the freshman football team and let you kind of learn. And then maybe your JV as a sophomore, no big deal. But everyone, by the time their junior year, the guys I was hanging with, they were all varsity. I don't want to show up. I can't go with freshmen. I don't want to be JV. What do I do? And so I just didn't even try, right? I just didn't do the, I just didn't do the football thing my junior and senior year. Um, and I probably would have been Division I scholarship if I would have done it, but I didn't. Why is that funny? Why is, why is that funny to you guys? Um, yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, and so I just didn't try because I knew, I mean, I was never that good and I just wasn't going to make the team, right? Like I just wasn't going to make the team, but there was something in me that was just driving me. I want to be significant. 
right? Like when you're in high school specifically, I just, I want to be significant. I want to be noticed. I, I want to I wanna be a part of something really big. And our, our football program was, you know, was kind of known and popular. And so I wanted to be a part of that. That's a 16-year-old mentality that we never really lose. It just matures and, and moves into other things. But there's something in our wiring. And I don't think it's evil. But I think in our wiring, we want to be a part of something significant. Right, you are working as hard as you are right now. In a lot of ways, you know, if you're a student or just a young adult or you're trying to build your career or whatever it is, because you want to live a life where you say, "Man, I, I'm a part of something significant. I, I'm able to work hard now to get the job, or I, I have the the job now, and I want to work up the ladder, or I want to start my thing, or whatever it is." We want to live a life that's significant, and we want to be a part of something. And if we're Christians. And if we are followers of Christ, then we know through our faith that we get to be a part of something significant, but it's not because of what we get to do, right? That what we say is we get to be put on Jesus' team, and he's like the quarterback and the receiver and the offensive line, and he's the one who's significant, but we get to be a part of that team. And so what that idea is in the Christian world is this very churchy word called calling, Right? We throw it around a lot in, in Christian circles. Man, are you called? What's the calling in my life? Uh, you know, what is the calling that Jesus has put on my life? And really what that term means, as churchy as it is, is really this idea of, man, am I on the team? Has Jesus said, yeah, that guy, that girl, come and be on my team? Am I called to be a part of this team, Jesus, that is going to be this eternally significant thing? And for clarification, even for this sermon, there's two different types of calling. There is a specific calling, that I know a lot of you guys are really in this place of trying to figure out what are your next steps? What is God specifically calling you to? Is he calling you to go be a lawyer? Is he calling you to go um, be a marketing uh, guru? Is he calling you to, to be a baker and open up a bake shop somewhere, right? Like what is that specific calling in your life look like, right? Which is a thing God cares about that thing, but I think how we determine his specific calling is a whole different sermon. This is really more about general calling which means, man, are we even called to be on the team? Are we called to be on the team? Are we on the team? Not just what's our role and what's our lane specifically, but just, man, are we on that team? And so what this sermon's gonna talk about today is the who is called, the why, and the how of God's calling. And I think it's really important for us to see that and unpack that because we want to be a part. Not just we want. We are designed to be a part of something significant. And I believe the most eternally significant thing you can be a part of is being called into what God is doing. So, who is called, why does he call us, and how does he call us are the three questions we're going to answer. Who is called, who makes the team, why do those people make the team and not others, and then how does that calling even look like? Luke chapter 5, verse 27. In, in the Gospel of Luke, they've been walking through just Jesus' life and story. And so verse 27, we see this incredible interaction, interaction and a, a really specific calling that happens. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." 
This is an amazing interaction that we see in Jesus' calling specifically of, of Levi. Some context. Levi, this tax collector, he changes his name and has his name changed, and Levi actually becomes Matthew. Matthew is the apostle and the disciple Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. So talk about a significant, impactful life. What's happening is we are getting to see an origin story of the apostle Matthew, who after Jesus' resurrection uh, and ascension, ended up being a key player in building the New Testament church that Jesus started. I mean, lived this incredible life of being an apostle and sharing Christ and helping begin the movement of Christianity 2,000 years ago. And this is where Jesus finds him and calls him and how he gets on the team. Another bit of context is tax collector. Um, you maybe have, have heard tax collector. It's kind of this derogatory term in scripture. And the reason it's a derogatory term, I'm gonna explain. Israel had been occupied by a foreign government, that government being Rome. And so the Roman army w- had taken over most of the world in this 2,000 years ago, right, in the first century. And they had taken over Israel. They had killed people, they had slaughtered people, they had executed people who didn't want them to take over, and they were oppressing and occupying a foreign country in Israel. And so to add insult to injury, not only had Rome taken over their entire community and civilization and culture, and, and were in the process of even desecrating things that were sacred to the Hebrew people. But also on top of that, they were like, hey, not only are we taking over, we're going to let you live here, but we're going to tax you. We're going to charge you to live in your own land. And so what they did was they got Hebrew Jewish people to be the tax collectors for them. And so those Jewish people were straight up traders, right? If you were a tax collector, it means you were a Jew who set up shop and you were taxing your brothers and sisters in really dishonest ways. You were stealing money from them and turning around and giving it to the army that was simultaneously suppressing you. And so a tax collector was the worst of the worst, right? These were people who, and and even a little bit more historical context, a tax collector, they basically had to write the check to Rome before they even raised the money. And so basically Rome would say, hey, tax collector, Levi, you need to raise this amount of money this month. Okay, cool. And he would give, go ahead and give Rome the money And then he'd get to raise whatever he wanted to, right? And so he pays it on the front end, and then he just lines his pockets on the back end with however much money he wants to raise, and the Jewish people can't do anything because he's got the Roman army behind him that says, hey, you can't mess with these guys. So that's what Levi was, right? So when you see tax collector pop in, I mean, you think of somebody who's not just betraying you, stealing from you, and giving it to your enemy so that they can continue to oppress you. That's Levi. That's currently what he's doing when Jesus meets him. He's literally sitting at his table, stealing from God's people when Jesus walks up. So the answer to the question, who does Jesus call? Right? Like, who does Jesus call? The answer to that question, Jesus makes very clear in this text. He calls sinners. That's who he calls I mean, he is very um, clear in this idea of he doesn't come to call the righteous. He comes to call sinners. He came and found this tax collector who was stealing currently, and that's who he chose to call. And even in the midst of him sitting here, which blows my mind, this wasn't a situation where Levi was like, man, I'm kind of having a guilty conscience of this whole like stealing from my friends and family constantly to fund the oppressive army that's currently persecuting them. Maybe I'll go to church this week. Maybe I'll go talk to Jesus. Maybe I'm in a transition in my life and I'm gonna kind of take a couple steps. No, no, Jesus fully showed up on his doorstep while he's stealing. Met him while he was guilty in his sin, in his betrayal. 
I love that. I think, um, I think personally, in my walk with God, so often it is shame or fear that keeps me out of the game, right? I think, man, I can't be on the team, right? I can't be on team Jesus because I know myself, because I know what I've done. I know what I struggle with. I know my past. I know what I'm tempted by. And man, I know my sin. And so often I want to disqualify myself to say, I'm not somebody Jesus would call, right? Or maybe, maybe one time, but, but man, I've made that mistake before and here I am again. You know what? I need to kind of get cleaned up a little. I need to kind of put my sin behind me at least Get some, get some distance between me and my sin and then I can get cleaned up and then I'll be a part of, of what Jesus is doing and get to be a part of something significant. But I've got to clean myself up. And, and scripture's really clear that's not how he works. I mean, he goes and meets them while they're far off, while they're in sin. That's who he calls. So often, your shame, misplaced, is keeping you out of the game. Thinking, no, Jesus isn't calling me. Jesus is calling the varsity Christian. Jesus is calling the person who grew up in church and has all the answers and checking the boxes. And he's not calling me. And yet, if you read the New Testament, he's absolutely calling you. He's absolutely meeting you on your front porch in the midst of your disobedience. Okay, why? <laughs> because it, it's not my righteousness that qualifies me, right? Like, I'm not qualified to, to be called because of my righteousness. There's no standard in Scripture that I measure up to. So why? Why does he call who he calls? What makes them worthy? Right? Why does he call them? Because he is gracious and because he is kind. Look, look at the text. Look at the text. And Levi made a great feast in his house and there was this large company of tax collectors. So here's the scene. He gets called out of that lifestyle of being a tax collector. He experiences Jesus and then he's like, oh my gosh, all of my other horrible, despicable friends, we all gotta hang out with this guy. Hey, other tax collectors, you guys, this Jesus is amazing. Let's all have a feast. Come and Jesus is there right in the midst of all of these despicable people and he's there and the Pharisees and the scribes who are the people who are checking the boxes and they're good and they're religious, good people. They are grumbling, saying, why? They're asking this question. Why is he calling? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' answer shows so much kindness and so much compassion and grace. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God's grace and his kindness. That's why not anything I did, the foundation of my faith is not me, it's his love for me. Not my earning it, not my qualification, not how cleanly I, how, how cleaned up I got myself. Titus chapter three, verses three, four, and five is another great articulation. The apostle Paul here, I'll throw it up here on the screen, uh, he articulates too this idea of God's grace and his kindness and mercy of of calling us, allowing us to be a part of, of what he's doing. Verse three in Titus three says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Here, verse three, I mean, this is us, all of us have lived disobedient lives. We have sin. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God 
our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're a mess. We're broken. We're sick. And he says, that's who I came to heal. That's who I came to restore. That's who I came to, through my spirit, clean up out of my mercy. That's what he does. If, um, it's in his character. It's in his character to be kind and gracious. If you have a view, and so many of us do, or, or tend to in certain, in certain times of our life, if you have a view of God, when you make mistakes, standing in front of you with arms folded, nodding in disapproval, if your view of your heavenly father is an angry judge or an angry dad who's just so disappointed and mad that you messed up, and here they go again, I forgave them for that last time, and now here they are doing it again, following the same thing that I forgave them, and I brought them back, and now they're doing it again, and now they're dirty, and now they're falling. Now, if that's your view of God, angry, arms folded, dig deeper. Dig deeper in God's word as it defines who he is. And that's not the picture we see of God. The picture we see of God is not arms folded, angry because you are failing the test. The picture we see of God is this, a bunch of foolish, disobedient people who out of his love and kindness says, yeah, you're a mess, come and follow me. And the Christian life, right, is one of us saying, yes, I I don't know why you love me. I don't know why you're so merciful. In fact, Romans 9, 15, Paul says this. It's a reference to um, Exodus when God's talking to Moses. But he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Romans 9 is this chapter where it's really defining who does God call and not call and how does that work? And and we just see this glimpse of he's just going to have mercy on who he chooses to have mercy. And I look at myself and I think, but why me? And why you? And it just ties to his character because he's merciful and because he looked at you. If you're here, if you're hearing this, listening to this later or hearing this right now, he looked at you and said, that's my daughter. That's my son. I'm going to have mercy on them. I'm going to show kindness to them. I'm going to show grace to them. That's who our God is. And then the Christian life is this life of saying, okay, I want to say yes to that. And we come tripping over ourselves for the rest of our life, but we learn to walk closer and closer and closer. And so brings up my last question then, how does he call them? Right, if, if who he calls is a bunch of sinners, which should be good news for this room because you're a bunch of sinners, right? And I'm a sinner. And so who he calls is a bunch of sinners. And, and why he calls them is not because we earned it, but just because he's gracious and kind. How? How does that look? How does that happen? What does that call sound like? What is it? How he calls us is boldly and completely. He calls us boldly and he calls us completely. Let me explain where I see that. Um, Verse 32. Well, you see the story, right? Levi, he didn't stay at the table. It it says he immediately got up. God found this, this tax collector at the table, said, come and follow me, which is incredibly gracious and kind. Right? This guy has all of these fans around him. He's got this huge gathering. Everyone wants to get close to Jesus. Jesus goes to this broken sinner and says, hey, you're my guy. Come with me. 
I love you. Come and follow me. Let's do life together. Come be a part of something significant. And what happens? He leaves it. He doesn't, it doesn't say like, oh, he packed up his stuff and like got some things in order and hired, subbed out, you know, his tax booth and, and arranged some things. No, no, he got up and he walked away from it. And he said, this is who I want. And then he started telling his other guys, dude, you've got to meet this Jesus. You've got to sit and eat and be around this Jesus. And he walked away and left everything. And this bold, complete calling and, and this idea that we see in verse 32, the last verse there that we read in Luke 5, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then what? What's he calling him to? To repentance. He's calling us to something. He's calling us to repent. And this idea of repentance is all throughout Scripture, right? The idea of Jesus calling us to repentance is consistent through Jesus' preaching in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and a side note, that's what we're reading as a ministry over the summer. If you've never spent time in the Gospels and just looked at Jesus and looked at his teaching, then read those with us. Every day we're going to read a chapter together and we're going to put it on the Insta story and take, talk about, hey, this is how it impacted me and this is what I saw from it. So just read the Gospels. Study who Jesus is this summer. He's constantly calling people kindly, graciously, but he's calling them to repentance. And what is that? Repentance is turning away from sin. It's what Levi did. It's getting up and walking away. It's identifying this is the disobedience. This is the sin. This is what I'm living my life. But I'm going to walk away from it. I'm going to turn and I'm going to follow Jesus. It's this turning from sin idea. And, and Jesus calls Levi, Matthew, and he does it. There's other instances where people don't. Mark chapter 10, there's this story of the, it was called the rich young ruler. And it's a guy who comes to Jesus and is like, hey, you're awesome, big fan. I'm following all of your rules. How am I doing? Am I good enough to, you know, to be on the team? Am I good enough to be called, to be a part of this significant thing that you're doing? And Jesus discerns his heart and realizes this guy loves money. There's nothing evil about money. There's nothing evil about having money. God uses people who are well-resourced all throughout Scripture for his kingdom. But there is something wrong about money being my God. And Jesus discerns this. And he says, yeah, man, you're doing great. You're doing great. All you got to do, you've done it all. All you got to do is just sell everything you have and follow me. And in Mark chapter 10, it tells a story of, and he hangs this man, this rich young ruler, hangs his head low and walks off sad. And, and it implies this idea of he just isn't going to let go. He isn't going to repent. He isn't going to let go of that. And man, in our life, there's so many things that we say, no, I've got to hold on to this. This is mine. And God calls us to turn from it. And we say, but wait, what if? What if I don't want to let go of this? What if I don't trust that what God has is better? What if I want to build my thing? What if I want to do, what if I can, what if I can determine the significance of my life and I can steer it and I don't want you, I don't want to follow you. And so we hold, we dig in, we hold fast, we grip tighter those things in our life this way. Okay, cool, I'm good, Jesus, with these things, but don't tell me to walk away from this. What is that? What is that in your life? What does repentance look like? What is God telling you? And it, it might not be something evil. It might be something good. But that becomes our everything. We're making it our foundation. And God says, lay that down. I will lay a better foundation for you. I'll lay a better foundation. Jesus is calling us to turn. He's calling us to a narrow road, right? A narrow path. 
And he even says few people are going to choose that. Most people are just going to say, I'm going to take the wide path. This is easier. This is much more comfortable for me. And Jesus says there is a narrow path that leads to a crazy significant life, eternal impact. Come, come live this life of eternal significance. That's what he stands in front of us doing. Leave your shallow sin and come into the deep end. And so often we say, ah, no. No. His grace is so abundant. But make no mistake, he is also calling us to repent from the things that aren't obedient to him. How does grace and repentance work together? Right, what does that dynamic look like? Let me read for you, and we'll put up on the screen, Titus chapter two, verses 11 and 12. And I think what Paul does here is a great picture of of just how grace and, and this idea of repentance work together. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What happened first? What was the first thing? What was the thing that it made the initial waves? It was grace. The grace of God appeared. That was the rock that smashed into us. And then our actions are ripples from that. The first thing was the grace. We don't read this passage backwards, right? If it was written backwards, it would say, hey, live godly lives and be self-controlled and don't have worldly passions and don't be ungodly and then you'll get grace. No, 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 that's backwards. God very purposefully intended his grace to show up first. But then that grace should make ripples in your life if you've really experienced and seen it and seen Jesus for who he is. The grace of God dropping into your life like a, like a boulder into a pond ripples through your life. There should be change. There should be repentance. There should be a transformed life. And it looks messy and nobody arrives. But there should be change. His kindness leads us to repentance. What do we do with this? What do we do with this story? What do we do with this this knowledge of how he, of who he calls and why he calls and how he calls. I want, I want to quickly apply two things for you to walk out of here to say, okay, great. This is who God is. This is what he's doing. But how do I walk out of here, change, and how does this apply to my life? Two camps in, in even this sermon in, in Luke chapter five, insiders and outsiders. If you're an insider, and here, let me define what I mean by that. Um, an insider, I, th- I feel like that has a very negative connotation and probably for good reason, but I don't mean it in a negative way. I mean an insider is somebody who's on the team, who God, who has given their life to Christ, who is a part of, of what God is doing and has already said yes to Jesus. And you are trying, although just like me, we're imperfectly tripping over ourselves, but you're trying to live your life to say, God, I want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to live a significant life that brings you glory and I want to do that. And so God has said, man, you are a part of this thing. You're at the table with God, right? That is actually the audience that Jesus is really preaching. And so for the insider, there is a clear message that Jesus has for those who are already having a seat at the table. And that is the idea of repent and repentance from a self-righteous perspective. God is calling us who've who have and are currently experiencing his grace and community with him, who are in the church, the big C church, 
to repent from a perspective of self-righteousness, thinking that I earned a seat at this table, thinking that I made the team because I'm good enough, and looking around at others and saying, oh man, you see that person, you see that person, I can't believe that guy over there or this girl over here. That's the audience that Jesus actually, this is actually written to. It's written to the Pharisees, to the scribes. That, that's the interaction that Jesus is having. And they're, they're so confused. What are you doing with all those guys? What are you doing with all those people that should be outsiders? Why are you bringing them to the table? Hang on. They're doing it wrong. We're doing it right. And Jesus is saying, that's who I came to save. Broken people and call them to the table. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And somewhere along the Christian life, it's so easy. If, you've, if you are close to the Lord, it's so easy and it's so sneaky. I'm talking from experience. It's so sneaky to all of a sudden have this subconscious self-righteousness that starts to, to start to fog the lens with which I see other people and even my place at the table. And it's, it's offensive to God, right? Insider isn't a bad thing, right? We're called to be a part of what he's doing, right? But we're called to be insiders who have an outward focus, the way Jesus did, who say, yes, I belong and I'm a part of what God's doing, but with an outward focus to love and to reach and to share and to be kind and to represent the kindness and the grace of our God. That's what we're called to do. That's the, that's the tension that we're called to sit in. And there is such tension there because the reality is if that's you, if, you're, if you've been walking with the Lord and trying to walk with the Lord the best you can, it's hard to see somebody else and say, man, that guy, that girl, oh man, they're so far off. And, and to have a self-righteous perspective. Sometimes it's even easier for the person who's way out there to be like, man, that guy is way out there. Sometimes it's honestly harder for the person who just sometimes comes to church because maybe you're in the camp of you're always at church, right? You go really consistently, but this person only sometimes goes and you know why they only sometimes go because you know what they're doing on those other weekends and you know why they're not waking up on certain mornings and you know where they're and you've heard stories or you've seen what they've done and it becomes this subconscious creepy thing that sneaks up on us, self-righteousness, that Jesus, that self-righteousness is just as wicked as any other sin. And God says, that's not my kingdom, that's not my team, and there's not a place from it. And so he says, repent, we've got to repent to say, what's our posture? Is it Jesus or is it some sort of religious club that thinks we earned it? We got enough knowledge and we got enough rules that we've checked. We've got enough experience under our belt to earn a seat. That's not his calling. We've got to flee from that. And we've got to forgive people who've hurt us because so often we think, okay, cool, I can love those people. But this person, that person hurt me. That person hurt me. They don't deserve to be a part of this community. They don't deserve the grace of God. Deserve doesn't have anything to do with it. We got to remember that. Ephesians 4, 3 through 2, it commands us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And this is big as God in Christ forgave you. If there are people in your life that you say, man, I just, I have a hard time loving that person because how they've hurt me, what they've done, we are called to forgive. And we're called to forgive because we have been forgiven. If you got a category of people in your life who you feel like don't deserve 
Scripture says none of us deserved, and yet he met us. Okay. Let's say you don't necessarily relate a ton to the insider. You didn't grow up in the church. You haven't spent a lot of time checking boxes and learning all the answers to Bible stories. Um, Or maybe you did when you were younger, but you have spent uh, the last season of your life, however long that's been, really running from that or just in a different world than that churchy, insider, Christian being on Jesus' team. And you much more connect to being an outsider. And you much more connect to this idea of, man, I'm not there. Here's what I want you to hear, and I love you. You have a calling too. You have a gracious God who is calling you to repentance from an unrighteous life. That God calls you to repent from an unrighteous life. Listen, if you come to this ministry, every week you will hear us preach the grace of God, the power and the abundance and the fact that God's grace is more powerful than any of your sin. You will never have a Sunday here where you don't hear the grace of God. But also, hopefully, you'll never have a Sunday where you don't also hear repentance. That it's not just the grace of God, it's the grace of God that's a fuel to run to something better, to leave the shallow end, to flee from a life of unrighteousness, disobedience that you're not designed for, that ultimately will leave you unsatisfied. That that is what real love is. Loving someone isn't just saying, hey, I got grace for you, I got grace for you, I got grace for you. Loving someone is, yeah, I've got grace for you, but I'm also calling you to something better. Our prayer, no joke, our prayer for you guys um, every week, every week I pray this for you guys, is, is this. It's that you would be ruined by Jesus. And what I mean by that is that you and me, I would continue, right? This isn't a switch I flip, that I would continue to build the muscle to see Jesus for who he is deeper and deeper and deeper. And I would see Jesus for who he is, that you would see Jesus for, for the Savior, for the gracious King that he is, the worthy God that he is. And you would see him more and more and more and more and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you would be so moved by that, <coughs> moved by his grace, that it would ruin you for everything else other than him. (coughs) Would we be moved by the depth and beauty of Jesus to the other things in our world just lose their flavor, the other things that are going to leave you unsatisfied? Just start unsatisfying. Start being ruined to say, I can't chase after these things anymore because I've seen something better. And that ruins us when we try to go back into our sin and we just think this, I lost my taste for this. Would we be overwhelmed by the grace of God in that way? Because the question I have for you, whether you're an insider, whether you're an outsider, whether you're some hybrid in between, the question is, are you tired yet, right? And that's not something I can do in a sermon. We can't play the right songs and the right notes to do that. I can't preach the right words to do that. The question is, has the Spirit of God interacted with your soul in a way that you find yourself this morning so tired of choosing other things, so tired of being judgmental and self-righteous and categorizing, following some weird chart that ranks you above other people in some exhausting comparison game that isn't from Jesus or some exhausting lifestyle 
to try to keep up, to make yourself happy or satisfied or loved or belong, you would be so tired of it to say, I'm exhausted. And you would hear and see the face of Jesus saying, yes, and I have rest. And my burden is light. And come to me. And would everything else lose its flavor in our life? Would we be tired of the other things we choose? And choose him. Listen to the calling of a gracious God. Would the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do? And would you listen and say yes to it? Let me pray. Father, your kindness leads us to repentance. And we're grateful for that. We're grateful for how you love us, that none of us have gone too far, that you know our sin, you know our temptation. You know the sin that we would commit if we had the opportunity. We just haven't had the opportunity. You know that. And yet, time and time and time again, we see this Savior in Scripture who knows us, meets us where we're at, and still loves us in the darkness, in those dark places. You still meet us, and you say, I have something sweet for you. And it's you. And it's a life following you, tripping over our feet, but following you. We love you, and we love you because you first loved us. Would we be overwhelmed by that? Would we be moved to action this morning by your Holy Spirit? We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.